Today on Inside Appalachia, we hear about a woman who entered the male-dominated coal industry. Oh, Lord, my mom threw a fit. (laughs) My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. We'll also hear how small Appalachian towns are trying to move forward after coal's decline devastated their economies. We closed Walmart. We closed Magic Mart. We closed everything. Y'all have no idea what my people go through. And we hear from one of country music's biggest stars. She's taking over as host for West Virginia Public Broadcasting's most popular live show, Mountain Stage. 18 wheels and a dozen roses. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Driving on down that whole town road There's a two-hour of a tire's wine Well, it's goodbye to Buckeye and White Sycamore I believe Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're talking about coal, which has shaped the last 150 years of history in Appalachia. Coal's been in slow decline here for decades, but really accelerated the last 10 years. That's meant hard times for communities that have long relied on it for jobs and taxes. So we thought it was a good time to take stock, not just of how we got to where we are today, but what the future might look like. We're looking at everything from the mine wars to the climate crisis. Now today, there's 66% fewer jobs in West Virginia coal mining than there were 50 years ago. And experts don't predict a comeback. But we're not alone. Other places around the world face similar dilemmas. Our producer Roxy Todd spoke with some of the people who live in those places to find out where we may be headed. So her story begins in Germany 50 years ago when coal executives and political leaders had to make tough decisions when it came to the future of coal and their home. West Germany emerged from World War II as one of the leading coal and steel producers in the world. Here's a group of German coal miners singing a song about the rise of the coal industry. Then, in the 1960s, oil emerged as a competitor in the energy market, and the country found itself in the midst of an economic crisis. The emergency prompted a strange and unusual alliance. The state government, the regional governments, the trade unions, and the employers, the industrialists, sat together and tried to find solutions to the problem. This is Stefan Moitra, historian at the Mining Museum of the Ruhr region in West Germany, a densely populated valley that's home to five million people. On the one hand, he says the coal employers were motivated to cooperate by their revenue losses. On the other hand, it was in the interest of obviously the workers, but also of the state to have one of the major industrial regions not falling into, you know, into the darkness. (laughs) So this coalition of stakeholders eventually settled on a surprising idea. They actually decided to shrink the coal industry. They merged all the coal and steel companies into one corporation. And the government poured lots of money into helping coal miners retire early. They also invested in emerging industries like tech, auto manufacturing, and tourism to diversify the area's economy. 
and they built universities, says Moitra. Until the 1960s, there was no major university in the Ruhr. Today, the universities in the Ruhr are one of the major employers. It wasn't easy, but West Germany survived the contraction of coal and steel jobs. Then in the 90s, the coal industry that was left declined even worse. And once again, the coal companies, the government, and the unions sat down and worked out a plan to completely phase out of coal mining by 2018. Sure enough, three years ago, the last mine in the Ruhr region closed. The curtain has fallen on coal mining, and 15,000 locals have turned out to give it a fitting send-off. There's plenty of melancholy in the air as traditional clubs, miners' choirs, pitmen, mine rescue teams, and foremen march by. It wasn't a perfect solution. The Ruhr area has still faced high unemployment at times. But the earlier transition efforts in the 60s made this latest shift much easier. Meanwhile, here in West Virginia... We've closed Walmart. We've closed Magic Mart. We've closed everything. Y'all have no idea what my people go through. That's West Virginia State Delegate Ed Evans, a Democrat from McDowell County. In the 1950s, it was booming, fueled by coal jobs. Now it's filled with ghost towns and ranks as one of the poorest in the country. This year, Evans pleaded with his colleagues on the House floor to plan for a transition away from coal. I've asked for help many times on this floor. What have I got? Failing to plan is planning to fail. That day, Evans urged fellow lawmakers to invest a chunk of the state's federal COVID-19 aid into helping coal communities plan for an economic comeback. His request was denied. Politics here in the United States are pretty different than in Europe. And when people talk about economic diversification in coal country, there isn't a clear path forward. Should such a transition be funded by the federal or state government or by private investment? One way we can think about all this is by looking to our neighbors in the north. In Pittsburgh, the collapse of the steel industry in the 1980s prompted existing businesses to retool for a new reality. But it took decades, says historian Alan Dietrich Ward. When you have a small number of very large corporations that really control your economic destiny, it can be very difficult to make economic transitions away from the industries that those corporations control. Economists predicted the decline all the way back in the 1950s, but their warnings were ignored. The bureaucracies that develop in large corporations are not known for their flexibility and their ability to quickly adapt to new uh, situations. Smaller companies are more adaptable, and they were a big part of Pittsburgh's renewal. Aided by lots of government funding, as well as help from philanthropic organizations, entrepreneurs created smaller startup industries in tech, the arts, and restoration of the city's historic resources. Pittsburgh really becomes a laboratory for what and how to save the past in a way that allows it to be integrated into the future. Some businesses here in West Virginia already are reinvesting and reimagining themselves, says Derek Scarborough at the Robert C. Byrd Institute in Huntington. Well, companies are definitely more and more interested in learning how they can broaden their, their base. The RCBI, as it's commonly known, opened 30 years ago with government funding. Here, business owners can use 3D printing and other machines to help revamp their business. A mining company based in Nicholas County uses the equipment to make mounts for outdoor cameras. They're selling them online and they have done extremely well with that. 
These are small glimmers of signs that entrepreneurs are moving towards retooling. But many are still reluctant, says Scarborough. Dr. Avi Mukherjee, interim provost at Marshall University, says he sees an increasing number of venture capitalists looking to Appalachia to invest. And there is a lot of interest in our part of the country in terms of what these ideas are and which ones can win. Mukherjee points to examples like App Harvest, which specializes in growing hydroponic vegetables on former strip mines and has attracted investors from all over the country. Or Ascend West Virginia, a program that offers virtual workers $12,000 to relocate to West Virginia. Over the next 20 years, Mukherjee expects West Virginia to see an increase in virtual jobs, things like cybersecurity and software engineering. Employers are already hiring in those sectors, says Natalie Roper, executive director for Generation West Virginia. Very often they have job openings and are struggling to get qualified applicants. When Roper's organization created a fellowship program to match qualified employees with employers, half of the jobs were in software development and most were virtual. That poses a problem in communities that lack high-speed broadband. West Virginia also falls behind in other aspects of infrastructure, from roads and bridges to a lack of basic necessities, like food and water. Legal scholar Priya Bhaskaran worries that without these essentials in place, the state won't be able to keep people from fleeing. If we give them an employable skill and, you know, they don't have good you know, safe water or like a decent road, of course they're going to take this skill and leave town. Boskarin has worked with communities across the country that are dealing with a hollowing out of jobs and people. She says leaders often neglect to ask people, what do they actually want and what do they need? And when you turn that conversation internally, you know, you really see that, you know, what maybe what people really want is a grocery store. Buskerin asks, what if helping people get grocery stores or better water infrastructure is where economic development begins? What if instead of training people to be coders, we trained people to be wastewater engineers or water system operators? Because there's a real need for that in West Virginia and greater Appalachia. Jim King is the president and chief executive of FAHI, a network of more than 50 nonprofits that fund about $330 million each year in projects throughout Appalachia. But he says much more investment is needed, and philanthropy and other institutions of wealth lag behind here. There is a historic disinvestment in West Virginia and Appalachia. And not only was the coal taken out, but the wealth, you know, the wealth went with it and other parts of the country benefited. King estimates that it would take nearly a billion dollars a year just to get West Virginia at the same economic playing field as the rest of the country. The coal industry here has also left behind thousands of acres of land in need of reclamation. Back in Germany, years of ongoing work to undo environmental damage and infrastructure decay have provided needed jobs, says Christian Wicca, a political historian. You have to imagine the Ruhr region has, is hollowed out like a Swiss cheese with lots of mines. And it's incredibly difficult to to organize a water system. At the same time, Wicca says Germany hasn't buried its coal and steel history. In fact, they've built museums about it. Artists have built steel statues on former mining sites that now attract millions of tourists a year. One might argue if you have a good job, the region is more livable than ever before. 
Back at the Museum of Mining, historian Stefan Moitra says that some of the older miners in West Germany do miss what mining was. But they are also very aware that times are changing. What many find important is that they can be sure that their kids and their grandkids can work and live without having to move away. Those words ring true here in Appalachia as well, where many worry about sustaining the next generation. As in Germany, it will probably take many decades or even generations for Appalachia to get through this transition to the other side. And what that other side looks like is still unknown. But what's certain is that planning for that future will probably get us to a better outcome. In 1986, the city of Essen in West Germany closed its last mine. Now, 35 years later, this region of Germany has a labor participation rate of 71 percent, more than 25 percent higher than West Virginia's. If West Virginians decide to follow Germany's lead, it'll mean people from different industries and leadership roles agree on a plan. Most importantly, they'll have to figure out a way to support coal miners and their families in the years to come. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Next, we're traveling back in time 100 years to when West Virginia was home to our nation's largest labor uprising. The Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921 was a watershed moment when coal workers decided their rights were worth fighting and even dying for. The armed insurrection pitted 10,000 coal miners against 3,000 heavily armed guards and state troopers. It was the largest armed conflict since the Civil War. As part of the uprising, there was an armed march of miners from Marmette to Mingo County. Us and them host Trey Kay recently retraced the path of those miners to learn more about what led to the conflict. Hit the Battle of Blair Mountain. The Battle of Blair Mountain is something of an enigma in modern history. A complex conflict that was the result of a number of social and economic forces that came to a head in West Virginia's coal country after World War I. The result was an armed march from Marmette to Mingo. To understand the complex history, we followed the path of the miners on their march to Mingo. And we brought along the foremost expert on this event, Professor Charles Keeney. How's it going? Good. Trey nice to K- meet you. Trey K. So, uh, we're going on a little journey? I guess we are. <laughs> so it's on to Marmette, I suppose. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Following World War I, the economic forces at play in the West Virginia coal fields hit miners hard. They became pawns in a power battle between the coal industry and the gathering momentum of the union movement. So the coal industry in, in West Virginia felt it was crucial to their bottom line to keep the union out. The United Mine Workers, in order to keep their contracts in these other states, felt it was crucial to organize West Virginia to keep their organization afloat. The West Virginia coal fields were ripe for organization. 
Working conditions were hazardous, and the health of the miners was constantly at risk. Miners were paid with company currency, and workers could only spend their pay at company-owned stores. For over 20 years, mining families had protested, organized, and sometimes even gone to war with their employers in order to reform these conditions. In 1921, they had finally had enough. The last straw was the murder of one of their greatest allies, a chief of police in Mingo County named Sid Hatfield. That was on August 1st. And on August the 7th, they had this huge meeting at the Capitol with uh, five or 6,000 miners. They tried to petition the governor. Governor Morgan would not meet with the miners. That's when my great-grandfather famously came out and told the miners that the only way you can get your rights is with a high-powered rifle, told them to go home and await the call to march. As it turns out, Chuck's great-grandfather was Frank Keeney, a central figure in West Virginia's union movement and a primary organizer of the March on Mingo. As Chuck Keeney and I drove along the route, followed by the miners, he described what must have been a spectacle. You had uh, the front guard, like a vanguard, that was up front, and then, you know, the, the line of miners that were marching were stretched out for numerous miles. If you would have lived in this area and you were not joining the parade, um, you just saw like a long stream of miners just marching from Marmette to, uh, well, Blair Mountain. Yes, it was just a huge, continual stream. How many people? By the time you get to Blair, there's at least 10,000. There's probably, by the end of the battle, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 involved. So where are we going next? We're going to Blair. We are not far. The Battle of Blair Mountain became inevitable. Every time conflict could have been avoided, outside forces pushed the miners and the coal company back toward violence. This is Route 17 we're on, by the way. And this was an actual road in 1921. Well, I mean, it, was, it was a dirt trail. It wasn't, it wasn't paved or anything. And there's a sign there that says the Battle of Blair Mountain. I might want to take a picture of that. Here we are at the southern crest of Blair Mountain. This is where we stopped. This is where the march ended, right here. When Chuck Keeney and I get to the top, we are standing at the high ground where the mine guards and the state troopers set up machine gun positions to attack the miners advancing up the steep slope of Blair Mountain. The fighting continued on through August 31st until September the 4th when federal troops arrived at Blair. So there was the battle. The United States Army, federal troops come here and from what I understand, the miners lay down their arms. That's correct. Of course, many of them were World War I veterans, and their beef was not with the federal government. Uh, their beef was with the mine guards, with the state government. And so they, so they weren't anti-American, even though they were often painted as being such. Did the people who brought this, did they gain anything? Yeah, the, the initial aftermath was it got worse instead of getting better. But... In some ways, the threat of more industrial violence is going to be a catalyst to encourage reform that is going to be taken on by the federal government the following decade. 
We talk about veterans of wars and talk about them sacrificing themselves for the freedoms that we enjoy. Well, what about uh, the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, weekends, pensions, unemployment benefits, all of those things they had to be fought for and they had to be bled for and in some cases died for. So that's why you want to remember what happened there. Americans need to understand the significance of labor history and unions in building America and turning America into a place where liberty can be enjoyed. Trey Kay, host of the podcast Us and Them, brought us that story. As we heard, the Battle of Blair Mountain was a short-term setback for organized labor. But by the 1930s, the United Mine Workers of America had become a thriving and powerful force. It fought for better wages and working conditions and influenced government policy like the New Deal. But with the decline in coal production has come a drop in membership, leaving many to wonder what's next for the union and the miners they represent. Dave Mistich brought us this report of an organization grappling with an uncertain future. Miners at Warrior Met in Brookwood, Alabama, have been on strike since the beginning of April. It's a rare union action in the American South, especially these days when membership in the UMWA continues to decline. United Mine Workers of America President Cecil Roberts, now in office for 26 years, has been walking the picket line with miners from Warrior Met. We're still doing what we've always done. We're fighting to, for the middle class here and make things better for our members. For nearly a decade, his organization worked through the courts to secure pensions and health care benefits for miners whose employers went bankrupt. People told us they'll never give you a dime towards pensions and health care. But we, uh, we had a success in 2013 where we were able to, to get about $400 million out of these companies. Since then, he says their fight for members' health care benefits has continued in the halls of Congress. Then we started lobbying up on Capitol Hill after we secured that money that allowed people to con- continue to have health care benefits. They won there, too. In 2017, the UMWA worked to secure health care for some 22,600 union members. Despite these wins, the organization faces a troubling reality. From 2002 to 2019, the number of members actively working in a U.S. mine plummeted from 23,000 to 10,000, according to data from the Energy Information Administration. These trends have paralleled the decline of total employment across the industry. When the union hit its height uh, during the New Deal, it had about a membership, I would say, of anywhere from about 500,000 to 470,000 miners. That's Dr. Richard Mulcahy, a labor historian at the University of Pittsburgh, Titusville. He says automation has played a role in the union's decline since the mid-20th century. The industry became far more machine-intensive than it is today, thereby more efficient. And so a lot of people were attrited out, you know, retired, this sort of a thing. Concerns over climate change and dramatic shifts in the economics of energy production have also taken their toll. There, there is no denying uh, of what's happening out there. 
West Virginia State Senator and UMWA District 31 Vice President Emeritus Mike Caputo is quick to acknowledge the coal industry's decline in recent years. But he says the UMWA is still trying to play a role, even as the nation's energy needs shift. We're the only ones out there fighting to preserve the way of life in coal country. With President Joe Biden's administration pushing for a cleaner energy future, Roberts, Caputo, and others in the UMWA's leadership have had to walk the proverbial tightrope when it comes to acknowledging the reality of the coal industry's future. On one hand, they know coal's glory days are over. On the other, they still represent those left working in the industry. Meanwhile, industry-funded groups like Friends of Coal have stepped in to create a sense of collective identity, an alliance between employers and workers, a kind of company union. Mulcahy, the labor historian, says the UMWA's current situation reflects that of the wider U.S. labor movement. With traditional manufacturing on the decline, they're at a pivotal moment. They're trying to redefine themselves, and certain other um, unions are doing the same thing or have been doing the same thing. So a lot of basic industrial unions are going into the direction of trying to organize white-collar workers or maybe new varieties of uh, mass production workers and so on. And I believe that the UMWA will be moving in that direction or is, in fact, moving in that direction. But how fast are they moving and could they be doing more? The UMWA has yet to say how they plan to address the limited demand for coal and coal miners now and in the future. And although they have expressed interest in organizing workers and coal-adjacent technologies and other sources of energy, like wind and solar, to date there is little evidence that a broad organizing effort beyond coal miners has been successful. Roberts claims that people in coal country are skeptical of a future in the renewable energy sector. The jobs as they exist right now in the renewable sector pay only a fraction of what a coal miner makes. Robert says over the years, there's been a lot of talk about what could replace coal as the main driver for the region's economy. But people in coal country are skeptical that the talk will add up to viable employment options for former miners. No one in Appalachia believes there's going to be a just transition here. That they believe that the Lord will return before they get a just transition into Appalachia. Ain't got no soul! The UMWA is also at a crossroads of another kind. With Roberts now 74 years old and his term as president ending in 2023, the longtime UMWA leader says he doesn't yet know whether he'll run again. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Dave Mistich. Their youth flies fast and then alas, before their time they're old. They've sacrificed all the time that's passed for coal black gold now you might notice that a lot of these coal stories are all about men and that's because the coal industry is male dominated but there are women in coal mining Oh, Lord, my mom threw a fit. (laughs) My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. We'll hear Anita Cecil McBride's story after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back, Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Before our next story, we want to shout out a new station that's airing Inside Appalachia, Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. I started my journalism career in Western North Carolina way back in 2001, and I'm excited to share stories with listeners there, like this next one about a coal miner in Boone County, West Virginia. So anytime we hear from someone in a coal mine, whether on the news or TV or the movies, it always seems to be a man. But there are women who work in coal. A 2020 survey showed that one out of 10 industry workers is female. That's why we wanted to bring you the story of Anita Cecil McBride. As a young woman, she followed in her father's footsteps and became an underground coal miner. Reporter Jessica Lilly visited with McBride to talk about her journey into the man's world of mining. Anita Cecil McBride is a self-proclaimed country girl. She lives up a steep winding road through a lush forest in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Anita walks over smiling and greets me with a hug. Well, it's nice to meet you. How are you? It's a hot summer day when Cecil McBride settles into a plastic chair as she begins to tell the story of how she came to be a coal miner. Anita grew up in an old coal camp town in Wyoming County, West Virginia, called Coville. My dad was a a lifetime coal miner and supporter of the family. Her mom took care of the house, the kids, and her father. They wanted me to go to college, but I ended up getting pregnant right out of high school and, and having a son. Even working multiple jobs, it was hard to support her son. That got Anita thinking about a job she knew paid better, coal mining. Plus, I listened to the stories of my dad growing up, and I just thought, man, that's got to be so cool. Anita started her first job underground in July 2005. Eventually, she earned her black hat, or mining certificate, but when she told her parents... Oh, Lord, my mom threw a fit. (laughs) My dad said, you sure that's what you want to try? I said, yeah, Daddy, it is. He said, well, i tell you one thing. If there's any woman alive that could do it, I believe you could. So she followed her father into a male-dominated industry. Not everyone thought she had it in her, but... He knew I could do it. He was really proud. Every time we went somewhere, he'd say, that's my daughter. She's a coal miner. Underground mining was a new culture. Starting out was rough. I was probably the most nervous person that you could imagine. I was the only woman there. They they had to make me a shower room and and all that stuff. It, it was it was different. Some of the other miners knew her father, Verlin Cecil, or Big Dog, as they called him, which helped. They was like they say that was one tough, you know what. <laughs> Being an underground coal miner was a big part of who her dad was, and it was starting to become a part of Anita's identity too. She embraced certain aspects, like shedding cultural expectations for women to dress, speak, and even look a certain way. She also cherished the special closeness she felt with her fellow miners. It still makes her emotional to think about it. It's a relationship and a bond that a lot of people won't ever get to experience. And that's because my life's in your hands. 
Anita says the negative feedback she received because of her career choice came from the women in her community, not the men. It's very hard because they had a husband, you know, helping support their family. I didn't. And I even told one one time, she said, well, I don't know why you want to go underground with all of them men. I said, I'll stay home. You want to pay my bills, too. Still, sometimes Anita did have to deal with traditional divisions of labor underground. I tried my best not to ask for help. Um, I said, you know, if I'm going to go underground and make the same money that they're making, I need to really give it all I've got. Like her father... Anita was a dues-paying member of the United Mine Workers of America. She once traveled to Las Vegas for a rally to support legislation protecting miners' pensions. And in 2015, with the coal industry in sharp decline, it was the UMWA that helped Anita find another job. So along with her husband, another out-of-work coal miner, she got her CDL, or commercial driver's license, and switched to another male-dominated field, truck driving. So they sent us to school, paid for us to get trained and, you know, even helped us find a job. But the only downside to that was it was over the road. So we were gone weeks and weeks at a time. And that was really hard. She misses being a miner, especially the bond she had with her crew. The relationship that I had with my guys, I wouldn't trade for the world. I love them and I miss them. Every one of them, even the hard-headed ones. Coal mining brought Anita and her father closer together, too. Every time we were together, we coal mined on the porch. You know, we'd sit and we'd talk and all kinds of things, tell different stories. Before I go, Anita shows me a wooden cabinet in her living room where she stores her keepsakes. This is my memory cabinet. I've got pictures, little coal figurines. Inside are portraits of her coal mining family, their obituaries, and her father's harmonica. She proudly picks up a small figurine carved out of coal. Uh, My dad used to collect these for me. These are women coal miners. Everywhere he found them, he would pick one up. Now, the statues help to pick her up, in a way. She's no longer a miner, but the coal statues help her to remember the relationship she's built underground and with her father, Verland, before he died earlier this year. She also treasures memories from her new job in the cabinet. There's a glass, vase-like container stacked with unique rocks, seashells, and even a cork, items that represent her new journey driving a truck. All of them's from the states that we went through. That, that was a bottle of uh, champagne we drunk in California. There's even a piece of lava in the vase. And so far, only one piece of coal. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Virginia. Earlier in the show, we talked about the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was the climax of the West Virginia Mine Wars. One of the big strikes that eventually led to Blair Mountain happened nine years earlier, in 1912 in Cabin Creek, West Virginia. Now, more than a century later, people in the area are still fighting for miners' rights through a local black lung clinic. June Leffler brings us this report. 
Today, a handful of minors are getting tested for signs of black lung at Cabin Creek Health Center. Big deep breath in, blast it out! Patients perform breathing exercises as nurse Krista Critchfield instructs. These exercises are meant to exert the lungs to their limits. Breathe in, breathe in, big, 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 good job. Got it. Woo! The patient, 74-year-old Roger DeWeese, sits inside a body box. It's a clear tube shaped like a telephone booth that gauges how much air he inhales and exhales. It's a tight fit for DeWeese. He's 6'1". I do get short of breath rather quickly. He worked in the mines as an electrician for 32 years. DeWeese has been diagnosed with black lung. The state has assessed him at a 10% impairment, but DeWeese knows that can worsen over time. It's like sandpaper or sand. It just keeps moving in, in your lung and that keeps getting worse and worse. He's getting screened today to see if he's eligible for federal black lung benefits, which are all or nothing. You're either declared fully disabled or not. Dr. Carl Wernz has screened patients like DeWeese for over a decade. Longer time in the mines is more likely to cause black lung. Wernz says the kind of dust a miner breathes is also important. If they were mining a lot of uh, sandstone or other things with silica in them, then that, that person's at much greater risk and they would get black lung with less exposure. Exposure to silica, the dust produced from rock drilling, is even more harmful to the lungs than coal dust. And experts say it's a major factor in the rise of black lung cases in recent years. But like when I was a resident in 2000, black lung was a disease that was going away. This is going to be gone by the end of your career. But that's not how it turned out. Miners starting their careers in the 90s faced a very different work environment than their predecessors. That's when new equipment allowed miners to dig further into rock to get to thin seams of coal. Currently, the rate of advanced black lung is higher now than it was when they passed the Mine Safety Act in 1969. Um, That's crazy. Okay, sit forward a little bit. Deep breath through your mouth. When Dr. Wernz sends his diagnoses off, the Department of Labor takes it from there. Qualifying miners receive a monthly check and lifelong medical coverage for their lungs helping usher minors through what can be a long and complicated back and forth with the Department of Labor, are black lung counselors like Beverly Lawrence. So we try to tell them, don't get discouraged, bring us what you got, and we'll try to explain it, you know, as simply as we can. But some minors will need even more help. That's when Lawrence refers them to a lawyer who takes black lung benefits cases, like Sam Petsonk, who works in Beckley. The system is there to provide stability to people, and... And my job as a lawyer is not only to ensure that it does that, but to inspire confidence in the mining public that this system is here to protect you. More miners have qualified for benefits in recent years, but he's concerned that even a miner who is entitled to lifelong free pulmonary care may not be getting it. What he might not realize is that he's also due to receive a medical card. If that card happens not to show up in the mail, which has been commonly heard of, that guy may never realize that a part of his federal award is a lifetime medical card. Petsong recently wrote to the federal government asking about these missing medical cards. It's one way he's pushing the system to live up to its promises. Zion Assembly Church of God in Cabin Creek serves more than the spiritual needs of those in the Cabin Creek area. It's also a meeting place for former miners with black lung. On this day, a few dozen gather for a cookout. Take take whatever you want. Get you another plate over and fill it up. Along with the miners are some of the folks who serve them. Petsonk, the nurses from the clinic, 
and former miner Gary Hairston, the president of the National Black Lung Association. Today, he's been assigned to grill duty. Hey, I'm ready to help anytime. When anything I can do, that's what I want to do. He first got involved through monthly meetings of his local chapter of the Black Lung Association held in Fayette County. There, he learned how to file for his own black lung claims, find a lawyer, and organize on behalf of others. And like I said, make it a lot easier for people around in the area. They can go to these places and they ain't got to go way out of town. And when we got them right here. Since the black lung movement of the 1960s, occupational safety in the mines has come a long way. But the Black Lung Clinic and the community around it still stand as a testament that the fight for minor safety is never done. For Inside Appalachia, I'm June Leffler. Over the years, Coles maintained a presence, not just in West Virginia, but specifically on West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage. I bring this up both because I'm always looking for an excuse to play something from Mountain Stage, but also because we are excited to announce we have a new host for the show. After 38 years and more than 900 episodes, co-founder Larry Gross is handing the mic over to Kathy Mateo. She's a West Virginia native who's been making country music since the early 80s. She's a two-time Grammy Award winner. You might remember her hit, 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. But Mateo's also spent the last 15 years talking about coal, both its environmental impacts and also its cultural roots in Appalachia. So I spoke with her about the full-time hosting gig and why she decided to take it on. You know, it's challenging. It doesn't look like I should do this on paper, but it's. I think Mountain Stage is important. I think live music is important. I think West Virginia culture is important. And I was just like, yeah, I think I'd say yes. I think wow. I'd say yeah. So you are originally from Cross Lanes, West Virginia, and I'm curious how it feels getting to host a show that was founded and is now housed out of the mountain state. Well, you know, I've spent my whole life being sort of a West Virginia native daughter, you know, like I moved to Nashville when I was 19. And then I I wound up getting to take this ride in the music business and touring all over the country and much of the rest of the world. And I didn't realize it at the time but being a West Virginian is just an integral part of who I am. So I wound up talking about the place that I'm from and the place that made me. And, you know, there's so much stereotypical stuff about hillbilly culture. And to bring some of the soulfulness of that to people, the chance to break those stereotypes. Well, another thing I wanted to discuss you have focused a lot of your work on coal. In 2008, you released an album called Coal. There were songs about black lung and the industry and how it f- affects small Appalachian families. Tell me a little bit about that work and um, why you gravitated toward it. So the Sago mine disaster happened. It was the first mine disaster that had happened in many, many years they were going to cover the public funerals for all these miners, for the 12 of the 13 miners died. So they called and asked me if I would sing a song. So 
I called some musician friends and we recorded a performance, but we spent the day talking about this disaster and how we had all watched it. One of my friends who was playing said, well, Kathy, you know, isn't that what music is for? For helping us process emotions we don't even always understand. Because uh, I was talking about just how much grief I had felt for these people I didn't know in a part of the state I'd never been. Both my grandfathers were coal miners, but my dad got out of the mines and he worked in the chemical plants. So I thought of coal as their story, not really my story. And so I was surprised that I felt so much about this. And I woke up the next day thinking, oh, maybe that's the record I should make. And then this conversation went on between me and the muse. I was like, don't make me sing about coal. Like, yeah, I think you should sing about coal. I know, but all the songs are in a minor key. How do you get out of that? Just do it. But everybody dies in the end, and it's really hard life and hard stories. I don't know if I can do this. My audience isn't going to like this. I don't think I want to do Yeah, I know. Just do it. Wow. <laughs> that was just, I could not get away from it. Through that process, I discovered that, you know, the biggest coal-fired electrical plant, the John Amos plant, I could see this, this, the steam from the steam towers from my parents' backyard. And coal was everywhere in my life. I just didn't see it because my dad wasn't coming home with coal dust all over him every night. His dad was, but my dad wasn't. And I realized it's part of all of our lives, whether we know it or not. I realized that I could sing a song from 1972 about strip mining and black water. And, and I could sing it now. And nothing's changed. Wow. I mean, because it, it changed your life and it's now shaped who you are today, do you think that will shape how you host Mountain Stage and that it could bring attention to the issue? I tell you, I just, I try to kind of ask the question about anything that's on my plate or in front of me to do or a decision I have to make. It's like, is this being of service in some way? And I, I felt at the time, especially like, because I had made this record, because I was learning about it, I had the chance to help amplify the voice of people who were being affected by mountaintop removal and black lung and various other things that didn't have much of a voice. And so my agenda for Mountain Stage is Mountain Stage. But part of why Mountain Stage has such integrity is one of their policies is we don't tell people what to sing on our show. For me, keeping that spirit is my job. My job is not to bring any agenda into it, really, except the agenda of an open forum for music to be heard by all people. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting, Kathy, when you were telling me about what was going through your mind when you were asked to host Mountain Stage officially, and you know you kind of had that voice in your mind, saying, oh, it's going to be too much, but yet the other voice is like, no, you got to do it. It sounds similar to the voice when you were thinking about doing the, the album Cole. Yes. That you were kind of unsure and that voice is like, no, you just, you got to do it. Is this kind of like your gut speaking? When I left college at WVU after my sophomore year to go do music, it was like, this does not make sense on paper. You know, my parents were depression kids. They grew up in coal mining towns. They were poor. They're like, get your degree go to Nashville, but get your degree. And I'm like, I know in my heart 
that if I don't go now, I'll never go. And if I don't go, I will ask myself for the rest of my life, what would have happened if I'd gone? So what I've learned to listen to in myself is like, I have the head voice that gives me all the reasons on paper why this doesn't make sense. But I've also learned that the decisions that are right for me come from my gut. Every time I followed it, it's never steered me wrong. And over time, I've learned to trust that more and more. And that it might not make sense to me, but if I have a strong intuition about it, I need to go with that. That's so powerful. I think a lot of us, we are trying to learn that. I know I sure am. Traveling on down that cold town road Listen to our rubber tires whine That was new Mountain Stage host Kathy Matea speaking with me. You can hear Mountain Stage episodes wherever you get your podcasts. To see the live show schedule, go to mountainstage.org. Well, somebody said that's a strange tattoo you have on the side of your head. I said that's a blue mark left by the cold. Little more and I've been dead. Today we've heard a lot of stories about coal. I grew up outside the coal fields, but coal still had a big role in shaping my town. I lived in the railroad belt around Appalachian coal country, and when coal went down, so did the railroad. Caitlin, you grew up in Wyoming, the only state that produces more coal than West Virginia. Yeah, and to be honest, Wyoming's a huge state, and I didn't really realize until moving to West Virginia how much the coal industry played a role in Wyoming. And It's interesting seeing my home state grapple with coal declining. You know, I think where West Virginia is right now is potentially where the rest of the country could be in 20 years. Yeah, Appalachia often gets thought of as like being left behind. But in a lot of ways, it really represents the future. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Kathy Matea and Billy Ed Wheeler, as heard on Mountain Stage. We also heard music by Merle Travis and Genova. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Catherine Moore and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Hey, 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.